Hello and welcome to Why It Matters. This is a podcast for leaders who know that relevance is a moving target. I'm Michael Goff and I'm the Strategy Director at Spark Studio. This is a collection of interviews with leaders who are passionate about something that is being overlooked. Sometimes that will be a brand, a product or a service, but it can also be an idea, something that has lost its value for many. And to re-express relevance, you need someone with vision. Today I'm talking to Jez Sweetland. Jez is the project director for the Bristol Housing Festival here in the UK. The festival is a five-year project that brings together industry leaders, local governments and the public to explore and reimagine better and healthier ways to live in our cities. So I'm asking Jez why rethinking housing matters. Hello, Jez, and welcome to Why It Matters. It's lovely to have you with us. Great, great to be along. Thanks for having me, Mike. And to start, it would be good to understand your context, give us some background on the Bristol Housing Festival, its history and, and your involvement. Yeah, so so often housing and the concepts of festivals don't naturally go together. So a bit of context about what is a, a housing festival. I think that we uh, in Bristol, we, we're a, a successful city in many ways, but like a lot of successful cities that in the UK particularly, there's a real challenge around the way that we deliver housing. We have in Bristol about 13,000 uh, families on the waiting list for social housing. We have 600 families living in emergency accommodation and huge pressure on the market for pent-up demand. So, you know, again, it's very difficult to, to get your head around those kind of numbers for a city that's only a greater population of about a million people. Yeah. Uh, and our dream really was, how do you use the ability of something like a festival? So our festival is not at the weekend, it's over five years. How do you use something like the concept of a festival to bring people together, the politics of place to say, this housing crisis isn't just happening over there, it's happening around you, you're part of the solution, you're potentially part of the problem that we need to bring together the politicians, we need to get, bring together the, the local population, we need to bring together the industry, and we need to reimagine and repurpose together. We need to think about hopeful solutions and recognise that we have a systemic failure. The sort of how do you create that burning bridge so that, that, that people are recognising you can't just carry on as we are. And we framed that around three challenges principally. One was the housing crisis and the numbers I've just talked to you about, you know, the affordability and the, the quality of the housing supply that we have in the UK needs to improve. The other was around the climate crisis, the climate emergency. Um, we need to be building differently to address that. But we also in the UK have a, a looming construction skills crisis. So national government will talk about targets of 300,000 homes a year. But actually, we are going to struggle in terms of that supply chain to deliver that. So how do you equip, support, retain and train that, that supply chain to build those homes? And that was the frame that we put that to the city and we launched the festival with a, a big showcase. So how do you get people interested in housing that ordinarily perhaps we only see housing when it's a building site happening around the corner from us? How do you get that sort of broader meta narrative? This is a city which has a housing challenge. You as a stakeholder in the city need to understand the complexity and the nuance of that story, because when we come to engage you, whether that's because you're campaigning for more housing, for, for affordable housing, or whether it's because there's a plot near you that's to be developed, how are you going to respond? How are you going to be part of that solution going forward? Mm. The heart of the episode is is this kind of question of why rethinking housing matters. But I guess, could you give us a bit of a kind of personal story about how you got involved in housing as an issue and what was it that you that you were seeing in your own experience that felt that actually there needed to be a rethink here 
Yeah, so I've I've come to housing the last four years really, and uh, had a background in law, and and then um, the charity sector, and then and then actually back into law, but in a management context. And about three three years ago, I gave up that particular job uh, and just took a few a few weeks really to think and ponder what I'd do next. And at the same time, we've been living in Bristol at that point for about six years, and I've become increasingly, I suppose aware of the politics of housing in the city. I'd, I'd formed a, something of a friendship with our elected mayor, was aware that his campaign had been very much around housing. And so with a couple of friends, we we dreamt up a notion of, well, what could we do? We, you know, limited resources, uh, limited relational capital, what could we do and, uh, to do something to address that, that chronic housing need? And we, we started to look at a very small project around, could we use some sort of quite clever stamp duty relief and, and capital gains relief to buy a home, renovate it, and then make that available to the council for some of the uh, refugees that were to be repatriated from Syria. And the council were very keen because they, they, they've got the money from that national government, but couldn't put these Syrians anywhere because there was no housing. And I think the more I got into that conversation, the more you look at it and you go, this is too small. This, this, this is, you know, it's, it's, it's not that it's wrong. It's that we need to think bigger. We need to, to think more system change. And at the same time that, that was happening, I, I was connected with a, a guy called Lord Way, um, who's a, a Tory peer. And he challenged me quite significantly about my thinking. And he talked about there is an opportunity here, particularly as we were looking at the innovation space, of what's called modern methods of construction. So this is a new systemized, manufactured way of starting to build homes. So people will often think of the prefabs post-Second World War. This is the modern version of that, which is can be zero carbon, incredibly high quality, incredibly high efficient homes. And national government is, is wanting that to become a significant new supply chain housing into the UK. So there was this moment where we were looking at that and going, oh, could we do something as an enabler? Could we Could we pivot from thinking about just becoming another contribution on a ma- micro scale to, to really talking about the need for systemic change. Could we become, through a construct which became the Bristol Housing Festival, a systemized approach to say, let's set out the problem, let's envision and co-design and co-create what the solution might look like. Let's use a festival concept to then not just be a, another talk shop. The last thing the housing crisis needs is more talking, it needs doing. So how can we use that to create a think and do tank approach but, but not that we're doing it, that we are convening and collaborating with a n- multitude of stakeholders, including the council, to test mm. and see what might be possible. Uh, and that journey took about two and a half years, if I'm honest. It's not something that you can, you know, I, I mean, anyone who's been involved with a process of change will know that you end up having the same conversation a couple of thousand times. And it's quite, it's quite <laughs> hard. It's quite, it's quite tough. And a lot of people will say to you, that's a great idea. But it, it's taking that as an idea and moving it to the next iterative process. So well, how do we, what's the first step? How do we start to do something? And of course, now we've got momentum. It's becoming in some ways more difficult because there's, there's, there's things we've got to keep moving. But it's also becoming easier because we can look at a track record of things we've delivered. And there's a bit more belief rather than maybe the cynicism of great idea. It's never going to happen. But it's more than just housing stock, isn't it? You're not just about a kind of an explosion of building more units. Because in looking at the website and, and looking at the opportunity, you also talk about wanting to build better communities. So how does the community aspect of it fit into the vision? Yeah, so we, we, we've got, uh, I suppose, two, two foundational elements to our approach. One is how, how is our, the housing that we're looking to 
encourage, enable, celebrate and demonstrate how is that housing better quality, more sustainable for the, for the planet. But the other element of that is always how is this housing building better communities? How is it fostering the wisdom and the approach that is, is about people? If you look at a lot of the built environment, marketing, discussion, training, technology, uh, data, we, we do a lot of focusing on uh, the technology of, of the building. It, even the construct of placemaking is all about, well, how do we build a really good place using our, our thinking? But often people are thought about, but they're not really engaged in that process. And I'll give you an example. I mean, you know, I'm sure you can think of places in East London where you can say, well, actually, it looks awful. Um, I wouldn't necessarily want to live there, but there's amazing community. And vice versa, you can probably show me some examples of beautifully designed places that have been really just beautifully thought through in terms of their placemaking, but they have no community. So we know that placemaking is part of it, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily mean that you get good community. And, and, and community is so important. And we've, we've learned a lot about that in COVID. And we talk increasingly about how do you move from placemaking mm. to placekeeping? How do you foster a culture in a place that is supportive? How, who goes in? Who does that? How does the local community that exists around that housing do that? What are the essential ingredients of, let's be honest, the difficult bit about building housing isn't the buildings, it's people. You know, that's the complexity and the, and the, and the uni- uniqueness of every single home. And that's the challenge that we're trying to foster, which is difficult because we can point to good examples, but it's how do you sort of get that, you know, that wisdom and capture it and start to build with it. And particularly when you're looking at affordable housing, what's the right mix? You know, we, we know from all the evidence that we don't want to create sort of social housing in isolation because it, it can create problems, social social problems. So what what's the wisdom of that? What's the right mix in terms of health and well-being? And one of the, I suppose, the principal conversations that we try to have is this, is the purpose of housing is not to build homes. It's actually to build an improvement in the mental and physical well-being of our people and the population, the planet. So, so when you when you start with the right objectives, you know we can build we can build houses. That's not what we're just trying to do. We're actually really trying to create the the, the context for people's well-being, the planet's well-being. Um, and of course, that is a very different starting point and envisioning point. And the climate emergency is a, a gift in that sense, I think, because it's forcing a rethink. It's forcing an opportunity. And what, what we're committed to is saying, yeah. as we do that rethink, let's not allow it just to be about the technical specification of how we're going to build this house that was traditionally built with brick and block, how we're going to transition that to a fabric first approach, meaning we're really thinking about how the embodied carbon and the carbon that goes into that building will transition, how, how the circular economy will allow the parts of that building to then be reused and recycled. That's important. But it can't just be about the technical. It also, if we're going to look after the ecology of the planet, we're going to look after the well-being of the populations. It has to be more than just the technical specification of building. And there's a lot of wisdom to glean and to share and to showcase and to learn from. And that's what we're trying to move the conversation to engage with. And the convictions that have led you to that, to that focus on well-being, what, what's driving that for you? I think it's personal experience and it's, and it's personal um, uh, motivation, I think, comes from, from a, a, a root of different things. I, I lived for six years in a, a community house that my wife and I established, and that had a significant impact on our lives in terms of what it is to to really live in a, a supported network, I suppose, of, of committed friendship. Um, and, and it can be family that we have that, or it can be a, a additional outside the nuclear family. And a lot of us take that for granted, that we have that relational capacity, we have that, those relational uh, opportunities. 
if you don't have that, life, I think, is very tough. And the, and the, the pandemic has, show, has shown that. And the, I think for me, it's become a kind of worry, responsibility, sense of conviction, sense of opportunity. Here I am as an individual who can draw on that relational capital that I, I've got the security of a job. I've got the security of a, a home that, OK, we don't own a home, but we, we, we know we can pay the rent. That allows us to flourish. That allows us to live. That allows us to function. And for too many people, there is a very dark, broken, hidden sense for so many people whose lives are utterly and broken because every day the, the lack of security about their housing, the lack of relational content that they have because of whether it's mental health, uh, drug addiction, what, there's lots of reasons, but a lot of those reasons are intertwined into, you know, the opposite of addiction um, is not sobriety, it's actually connection, relationship. So as a society, you know, we, we absolutely need to put people into homes. But if those people are going to be in homes, they also need that responsibility of broader civic society to say, but how do we then also gather around people that, that they can go on a journey of, of recovery? And, and one of the things that we're committed to is, is you know, how can we help with that? That, that the housing is part of that solution uh, and to build a social equality coming out of, you know, COVID is going to increase. We know that. So how do we gear up for that? The other thing with the climate emergency is that, you know, let, let's be blunt about this. The biggest challenge we face for the climate emergency is poverty and social inequality, because for those people that have the, the luxury of shopping in Waitrose and can make organic choices or choose the paper bag over the plastic bag, that's great. But if you are grappling with the ability just to feed your kids each day, you don't have the luxury of those choices. So, you know, we can't allow the climate emergency to be tackled by thinking we, that we can get those in luxurious positions to make particular choices. We really need to tackle that social inequality so that everybody is raised up into being able to make sensible choices in life. So, yeah, hugely passionate about it, but, but really recognising as well that we could, we could fix, or there is a risk we fix the housing crisis and build 300,000 homes. And we get to the end of that and we realise we've just created another problem, which is that we put a lot of people in homes who still aren't able to be thriving, flourishing, yeah. resilient. And, and, and we've got another problem with the got to fix. And so what, what makes for creating better communities? What are the things that you have sort of learned in the research and the thinking around the sort of contact through the festival? That are, there, are there kind of pillars that, that are needed to, to build better communities? Yeah, I, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion. Uh, and again, come out of COVID, it's increased and the sort of build back better narrative. But, but you know, our access to green spaces and, and communal spaces is important. You know, how do we uh, create environments where people can gather together, uh, you know, active travel, yeah. ecology corridors. There's the kind of the placemaking element of that, that, that that's really important. The mix of how we, you know, how we integrate social housing and affordable housing into schemes that, that, that it's pepper potted, but meaning it's not just in one area that becomes a bit sort of stigmatized. But but I think it's also on the micro. It's 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 the it's the thinking, how do you create the right support networks? You know, recognizing there's only so much local government, national government can do. Uh, and I'll give you just one example of that. So we were involved recently uh, in a project called Hope Rise, which has now just been finished. And that was a sort of reimagining of how we could use some of the city council car parks. So, you know, there's all this land. We don't know the future of the, the use of the car in our cities, but we've got all of this prime land in cities that sits there. So we partnered with Z-Pods and we were able to, with the council, uh, use the air rights above that car park to build 11 
zero carbon homes. And these homes are beautiful and they overlook the parks. They've got a great view. But we, we were really pushing pushing the council to say this housing is going to be all for social housing. It's, it's going to be working in partnership, therefore, with how do we work in partnership, therefore, to take responsibility for who does that place keeping when you, the council, have built it and you'll maintain the buildings. But who's going to think about fostering community in those homes? How do they not become just this little island of housing? Uh, that is disconnected. Yeah. So we partnered with the YMCA in Bristol with permission of the council and they had, uh, had set up a commercial backpackers hostel and from that they'd given um, eight rooms over to young people in housing crisis who would have otherwise been homeless. But they, they needed to hop the rooms back and they wanted to recycle um, those rooms for other young people in need. So mm-hmm. YMCA were able to take uh, six of those young people and they were prioritised for housing for the, this uh, Hope Rise scheme. But then two of the homes... At the end of the sort of the bookends of the scheme, uh, we recruited with the council what we call community builders. And these were young people, so aged under 35, who were key workers. So they, there was a sort of criteria to allow you to qualify because you were going to get a discounted rent because it was affordable housing. And, and the civic responsibility they signed up for was to say, and we will take responsibility for thinking about how we can foster community, knowing that a lot of these young people have come out of housing crisis, come out of quite chaotic lifestyles, will be their relational capital, will be their sort of immediate friends and family to be that signpost, to help them think about how, how they can build more, more successful lives. And we'll model that for them. And we'll, 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 we'll set up groups and we'll meet together. And that's just started. And um, we're thrilled with how that's going. And, and we're learning a lot from that. It, it, and I think what we've also learned is that there is not a one size fits all, you know, that we've got to be, you know, learning from other people, doing other things. There's amazing things happening all over the country. And, and I think one of the challenges that we see in housing is that if you pick up the press, what you tend to see is, you know, the negativity. You've either got an incompetent local authority who's made a terrible planning decision or you've got an evil developer who's building this horrible scheme here that nobody wanted. We very rarely celebrate good news in housing, and that creates a very toxic atmosphere to do new things because it creates a fear culture. So, so within that, what we're trying to do, take things like Hope Rise and say, here's an example. Yes, it's small scale. Yes, it's only 11 homes, but it gives you the essence of what's, what's possible. This is free land, zero carbon housing. It's fostering community. It's, it's looking at the place keeping of how we support those young people as they transition. Um, and I think it's building that story and that confidence, building that story and that confidence that starts to help us replicate and scale these kind of opportunities around the country. Fascinating. I wonder to what extent the kind of events that we've been through over the last sort of 18 months or so around lockdown and COVID have created another sort of sense of catalyst for you. Because certainly on our street, we live in an urban terrace in East London and the lockdown kind of forced us to be really conscious of what was going on on the street and the community and our neighbours. And, and as a result, we are much more interconnected as a community, as a street, because of the 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 reality of the challenge and the difficulty of COVID and the lockdown. Have there been other a sense of kind of momentum or, or change as a result of the the kind of difficulties of the last eighteen months or so? Yeah, I, th- I think the global pandemic and and for, for the UK it's been it's been brutal and it's only shone a really difficult light on a lot of our current way that we we live that is is really either not healthy or or, or not sustainable. And my hope with that is the worry I have is that, the, you know, as we as we hopefully and we are, you know, uh, start to return to a sense of normality, that the build back better narrative simply sort of falls into the into the distance as we suddenly just 
return to how we were. But I, I do think there is such a, a wisdom to glean from that experience. The resilience of our communities has been demonstrated. Can you imagine if on mm. your street that for the mm. elderly, that they, for the shielding, that they had to rely on public services to collect their prescriptions or had to rely on public services to collect their milk? I mean, it just wasn't sustainable. And I think we've all experienced probably whether we were able to be providers of some of those services to our community or we were, were recipients of some of those services, that we're richer for it. And therefore, to, to notify to ourselves that, again, for those people that didn't have that, you know, that, that it's, such a, it's such a wealth of, that we have available to give. It doesn't necessarily cost us much, but, but it can make a significant contribution to someone's lives. And I think the other thing it's done is it's created a really difficult moral imperative because let's be a little bit contentious maybe, but when it suited society to get all of the homeless off the street, because we didn't want them spreading or collecting a pandemic, we decided that we'd find the money. And, you know, huge credit to the government. Within a period of weeks, pretty much anybody who was homeless had somewhere to live. Well, as the pandemic eases, are we deciding that that imperative suddenly doesn't matter because there's no longer a risk to you and I who have a home that they might be spreading the pandemic? And I think Mm. we've got to look quite hard at how we reacted in the pandemic to say there is something about the moral imperative of that, which means it's no longer acceptable or excusable on a financial model to say that we can live with that sort of level of street homelessness moving forward. But but again, to recognise if we're really going to serve those people and, and, and love those people well, it's not just about a house. We've got to think through, you know, as I said, you know, people don't choose to be addicted. Very rarely, you know, often addiction is a response to pain, isolation, yeah. whatever else. And you know, as we've seen in the pandemic, society, that connection, that sense of being with other people is important to all of us. And some people don't have family, you know, they don't have that backstop. Uh, How can we not just look to public government, not just look to the public sector, but actually look to ourselves, look to our streets, look to our communities to say, well, what can we do? Uh, How can we respond? And so what's lost if housing isn't rethought? What's the kind of fallout for society if we don't take this issue seriously? The, the numbers around the UK are pretty staggering. And the, the division between society, if it, you know, for, for, for probably, you know, 70% of the UK, there isn't a housing crisis. You know, you own a house going up in value. That's actually pretty, pretty attractive. That's pretty, you know, you're not, you don't have a housing crisis. For the people that don't own a house, for the people that the aspiration to ever own a house or even have a secure tenancy is getting further and further out of reach. There is something about the fabric of society that I think is completely unsustainable. There's a lot of anger. I remember uh, when we popped up, when we launched the, the festival in Bristol, we popped up seven modern methods of construction houses on our waterside to kind of demonstrate to people the art of the possible and to get people to sort of see how some of this zero carbon quality housing might look in the future. And, uh, you know, people were fascinated by it. But one of the things that shocked me was one night somebody came and defecated and threw, threw all that mess at one of the homes. It wasn't just the shock that it had been done. I think it was the reflection of the shock afterwards of thinking, actually, I think I get why you're so angry. Because we just popped up seven homes overnight and you've probably been on a waiting list for 15 years. And, and the level of disconnection, disengagement, isolation... And seeing that the, just the dream of somewhere to live that I can live in securely and I can afford is getting further and further out of reach for so many people. A lot of the national policy with austerity has meant that local housing allowance has got way out of touch with private rental sector, or therefore that people are forced into more and more inappropriate housing. So what's the cost of society? I think 
put it this way, riots aren't good for cities. They're not good for the economy. And social inequality is not good for the well-being of cities and for the economy. And I don't mean to bring it back to money because that's not my driver. But but there is something about, you know, for for society to become a, a sense of those that have housing and those for whom are essentially reliant on the state to get more and more poor quality homes or rely more and more on a private sector uh, to rent homes that they can't really afford it is not sustainable. I, don't, I just don't believe. And, and of course, we're seeing that division now between the younger generations. So um, the reality is for a lot of the younger generation coming through, they will never own a home unless their parents own a home. Now, you start to look at that as a social demographic. That is a massive schism in the UK in terms of those that are born into housing and those mm. that are born outside of housing that is not going to be a healthy society. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's far reaching, I think. If we don't address this crisis, I think we will reap, you know, the, the reality that our society is not able to really consciously look at itself and say, yeah, we found a way of ensuring that we stop that division between the rich and the poor. And, and we're watching it happen now. I mean, even post-pandemic, we're mm. seeing house prices surging again. Land, because we can't make more land. We just, you know, Bristol is a great example where we just, you know, we have geographical boundaries. We can't make more land. So how we use the land that we have to really look at that issue, I think, is fundamental to the success and the social equality that we want to see in our cities for the future. It's, a, I mean, it's a, a gargantuan issue, isn't it? And as you talk about, you know, you need a, a seismic change in order to, to shift shift it into, into a more kind of positive direction. It almost feels insurmountable. But I know that, the festival is involved in various projects. Who's doing it well? What's the range of ideas and innovations that you're exploring at the moment to try and get momentum in, in making a difference? Yeah, and, and and so, you know, if people are interested, there's a website they can look at and and we've got some great projects coming forward, partners like Legal and General Modular and Booklook and a number of other modern methods of construction partners who are really creating healthy collaborations with the council to look at well, what's your vision as a council for this land? What's your vision for the affordable housing? What's your vision for the ecology and the sustainability of this housing? And they're, and they're working together on, on that shared vision. I think that's important. How do we create these healthy collaborations? Which, yes, it, it will always come back to money, but, but it's starting with that shared vision. And, you know, one example is a couple of the schemes would have traditionally been built with gas boilers, but we work with, with the partners and they've redesigned because of course there's good you know for people that are aware there'll be a change coming in the future house standards gas boilers won't be allowable in new houses and so you know all of these houses are being delivered around um, air source heat pumps and and, and solar so that we've got the, the ability to sort of future proof them and, and deliver the carbon you know we've looked at how we improve and increase the e- ecology on these sites even with the houses so we're, we're, that sustainable element is, is so important but what I think I'd want to say I think is more important is what sits behind these conversations and the projects is systemic change the biggest challenge we face I think in the built environment is the the current model we have around how what we value and how we value things. So traditionally, the way we build is somebody gets a piece of land, they buy that on the open market. That means that it's, it's you know, they're competing to buy that land. Now they've got the challenge of building a number of homes and making a profit, have to recoup the value of that land and, and with the planning uplift, et cetera, et cetera. And so we talk about the cost of housing is what does it cost me to build it on day one? And what's my return on day, let's say day yeah. 30? You know, to, And that's crazy, isn't it? Because Housing is an asset that sits. So one of the things we're, we're doing a lot of work in is, is really rethinking the wisdom of value. So if, if I as a council own land, 
what is my vision for that land in the longer term? So how do I want that housing to a address the affordability challenge? So what 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 are so some of the schemes with Living in Bristol are going to have over fifty percent affordable housing, which is uh, is, a, is a really good mix and a balance. How is that housing contributing to our climate emergency we've announced and our, our ambitions for net zero? How is the housing contributing to our, our ambitions to create these healthy and resilient communities? Now, all of those things are easy to talk about. All of them cost money. And so one of the reasons I love modern methods of construction is that at the moment, it's a bit like when you get an, a, you know, an upgrade on your phone, you expect it to cost more. And you don't question that because you're you're getting better technology. But the, the methodology of housing is still tends to be driven by get the land as cheap as you can. And I'm, I'm not trying to do an injustice yeah. here, but there's a challenge. Build to the market and then maximize the return on the sale because these are commercial businesses. Now, I get why they do that. What we're trying to say is if you can create healthy collaborations with local authorities who own land, if you can use modern methods of construction to blow open the, the, the mindset that says this is about how we do it cheaply, to say, no, we want to do this with better value. We're using something increasingly called the Social Value Act, which I think is a gem of a piece of a legislation that allows local authorities to question and to redefine what is meant by best value. And best value tended to mean what is cheapest. And we have to get away from that mindset. We are yeah. not going to fix our housing crisis, our climate emergency whilst we are still operating within a, a mindset that's looking for cheapest. And of course, you know, within that, you start to think about systemic change. You start to think about data. We can start to measure the data of how houses perform over their whole lifetime. Um, the energy saving, the energy poverty that's released. We can start to measure the clean air that has a value. So how do we then translate that better wisdom of lo- longer term decision making into a monetized solution so that when we're procuring as a local authority or as a public body, you can say, well, look, this is best value because actually we are deliberately and consciously looking at a longer time scale where we're tapping into the health and well-being of our planet and our community. We're looking at the benefits of the NHS. We're looking at the benefits of the prison service. We're looking to the benefit of social services, not just within that, you know, that limited capacity. Well, what does this cost? And that is a revolution to encourage people. I think is happening all over the UK right now. There's a lot of work being done on this. People will talk increasingly about data as the new oil. I think this is an example where we are going to have to grapple with what's the data we're going to capture, how are we going to capture that data, how are we going to evidence the value, and how are we going to weight that value to make the right decisions. So for me, we want to use the test bed of a festival to have a go, to, to look, yes, at individual projects, but it's behind those projects. What's the governance What's the procurement? What's the legal frameworks? How do you create a structural context to really deliver systemic change to get the right future outcomes? And that's really the bit that we're most fascinated in. The, the, the projects, there's nine in particular working on now with Innovate UK. By aggregating all nine together, working with one council, we have an opportunity to say, well, look, we're not going to do this as a, as a sort of little pilot that doesn't get repeated. We're trying to do it in a way that we're going to glean all of that learning to create institutional confidence and expertise that we know how to do this again and again and again and then to share that wisdom and go again because we've got to keep learning as we go so so it is about projects but i think it's really important to say because of the scale of the challenge if you haven't got the right systems or the right governance structures or the right leadership behind those projects you're always fighting an uphill struggle that's so so the vision for us is actually how do we connect back into systemic change systemic thinking needs to change. And that's that's the real prize of what we're trying to go after using modern methods of construction, because it is a window into, into how we might have that opportunity to rethink some of what we're doing. 
how is that discussion around value and and changing the conversation around uh, what we consider valuable being received by the sort of the big construction firms you know those who are very much driven by uh, by unit costs and by profitability, particularly if they're a PLC and they've got shareholders and they've got pension funds and institutional investors who are signed up to it. You know, you think of um, some of the challenges in other sectors where there there is a real push for better business, but the, the shareholder, the stakeholder is actually more concerned about the kind of return. How, how do you move that discussion around value to be more than just financial return? Like a lot of markets, there's there's a mixed bag. I think there are some that are way ahead and they're driving the narrative and there's others that are a little bit head in the sand hoping this whole problem might go away. I, I'd slightly flip it around again to say, how are the commissioners of housing driving the agenda? Because if I'm, if I'm a house supplier, if I'm a house builder, um, I have a client and that client will pay me to produce a product. So one of one of the I think really important things here is to recognize that that you know if you look at the the buying power if you like of social housing providers so this is registered providers of social housing in the UK and you the buying power of local authorities in terms of the fact they own land often that is a significant market influence and I think one of the really positive conversations that is genuinely happening in, in lots of places and we're tapping into some of that is 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 how do you, as a commissioner, ensure that you're commissioning the right type of housing and that will move the market forward? Because if, if, the, if the, the sort of climate emergencies that local authorities um, are, are announcing, that policy has to bite. And what a great place for it to start to bite in terms of housing delivery. So there, there is a market emerging at pace now. There's a bit of an arms race, I think, emerging around who will be um, the sort of front runners if, if delivering quality zero carbon housing. Um, but but housing, you know, most of housing is about land supply. And and therefore that land supply, one of the clarity to me about this is that if you're a commercial house builder with PLC uh, and shareholders, it's very difficult for you to take significant innovation risk if you've got a very successful business model. Because it's a difficult ask of your shareholders to say, oh, yeah, let's just throw the whole thing up in the air and try something new when actually we're creating a very safe successful business model. I think it's incumbent, therefore, on social housing providers and local authorities who have a different mindset. They, they, they manage that housing for the longer term and local authorities often can own land. They, they are needing to take that innovation risk and really redefine what they're going to commission. And, and I think that changes the market because you could, that will also create, therefore, for the, for the customer, the client, even for the private sale. So for the savvy consumer coming down the line, I think there will be increasing demand for consumers to say, actually, I do want to buy a really energy efficient zero carbon new house. I don't want to buy, a, you know, a, a box bashed up home that actually it doesn't perform well. I've got some sort of awareness around that, my responsibility. And I think the other thing to say about this is the market will change when uh, there's, a, there's a lot of talk at the moment. And I think a lot of you've got national policy starting to move in terms of housing and the sort of carbon agenda. You've also got the ESG funding, so sort of environmental social good governance funding, where at the moment, that's more expensive funding. If you go to the traditional capital markets, you can borrow capital much more cheaper than ESG. But that will start to change. So, so local authorities, mm. commissioners of housing that that know how to tap into that ESG funding, will suddenly be able to move ahead at a pace and get capital that other organisations can't get. So, I, I think there's lots of reasons to be hopeful. But I think a lot of this needs to also be led by commissioners tapping into what the market's doing now, those front runners, those innovators, those leaders, you can't just expect, in my view, the PLCs to suddenly blow up the whole thing because 
they work within a construct of planning national framework policy. But there's reason to be hopeful because actually I, I can give you examples. And, you know, I don't really want to give names now, but there are examples of, I think, people that are starting to really walk this. And some of the conversations we have with some of these uh, uh, these house builders are saying to, the, to us, we'd love to do this, this and this. But at the moment, we're being told it's too expensive. And so, again, you're, you're straight back into that conversation around what do we value? Do we value just what it costs on day one, or we can actually work out how to say, no, we want the zero carbon, which is going to cost us an extra £15,000 per house now, because we know it has a better effect for the longer term. Yeah. And the irony, of course, being that if we, we're still building houses in the UK that aren't going to comply with future legislation, within three years, they're going to cost more to retrofit. So there, there's a complete, sometimes a complete disconnect between the immediacy and the urgency of the now with the wisdom of the longer term. We've got to join those back together. What are the principles that you have learned in your time with the festival and, and, and driving this agenda about persuading stakeholders and perhaps persuading the commissioners in particular that change is necessary? I guess I'm more interested in there's a good way to persuade and there's a bad way to persuade. How have you helped to, to uh, encourage that change in the way that you've set out the opportunity? Yeah, it's, it's been a fascinating journey for us. And I think a, a few of the takeaways have been that, one, we've had to demonstrate some real perseverance. I think particularly when you're looking at, you know, such a big vision of, of systemic change and, and, and new ways of doing things, innovation in, in what can be quite a risk averse culture. We've had to demonstrate a willingness to do a lot of the hard running and persevere and build credibility. And that has taken time. I think, you know, a, a lot of people will turn up, particularly to local authorities or public bodies and offer some help or some consultancy and, you know, with, with sort of all sorts of promises, but but change takes time and it takes a lot of perseverance. I think one of the things is we've we've kind of had a culture that says we're just here to serve and we'll do whatever you ask because we want we want to be a genuine help and and that's that's sort of been our, our mindset of how can we serve and I think the other mindset has always been how can we ensure that you the council take the credit because you the council or you the partner the MMC partner or you the social housing provider ultimately our role has been very clearly to want to be an enabler and a catalyst for change, but we will never build housing and we will never own housing. So there's this sort of distinction between our role to try and be the collaborator, to, to bring people around the vision, to, to sometimes do the hard running and the sort of the, a lot of decision making is quite siloed. So how can we draw together, you know, even across one organization, the key stakeholders to get that shared vision? We'll do that hard running. But when it comes to delivery, when it comes to ownership and maintenance, it's your story. You deserve the credit because ultimately you're the people that have taken that risk. And yes, we've championed you and we've cheered you on and we've supported you. So I think there's, we've had to learn that there's got to be a, as you build trust, I think it's, it's, it's also showing that, that we're not going to then run off with the story and take all the credit and leave them high and dry if it's successful and run away if, it's, uh, you know, if it doesn't work as, as well as we hoped. So perseverance, building trust, and I think taking time to, around this thing of co-design we went in with a load of ideas at early days about what the housing festival could be and what we thought it should be. And as more stakeholders got engaged and more partners were involved, we've recognized we've, we've wanted it to be co-designed and co-created. And so having, you know, we're a small organization. So that agility to, to allow the stakeholder input to be genuine, valuable, seen, recognized, delivered has been one of the things that's been really fun and, and, and has been a genuine learning curve. And I think for us, it means that the, the, the notion of the festival as a, as a concept was always this, how can we create an umbrella to celebrate good news, to create test beds? So it's a think and do tank, 
and then to really think and drive systemic change. And ultimately, that systemic change won't belong to us. It will be delivered, known by other people. But that's what we're seeing. And that's so that co-design, that co-creation, mm. along with that perseverance and building trust has been, I think, is the beginning of the journey that we're on. And, and I said the beginning because we set it up with a five-year festival. We started in five years with a five-year timeline. I don't know where we'll be in the next three years, but there's obviously going to be still a lot of housing to fix and to sort out. So I hope we'll have a role somewhere, somehow. In, in continue to sort of drive those conversations forward and, and celebrate where people are having the courage to really do new things. And if listeners want to find out more and sign up to, to engage with more of your content, where would, they, where would they find more about the festival? The easiest thing is to have a look at the website, I think, which is bristolhousingfestival.org.uk. And we're on the normal channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If people are genuinely interested, it's not what we're trying to do is not just talk about what we do. Uh, but also celebrate what others are doing around the country because we also have this sort of mindset that it's not just, it's about learning from each other and actually other cities and other countries. So we hope over the next, you know, six months, there'll be some quite significant announcements coming out, which kind of set a framework for how we can operate, how we can draw people together, how we can share. Crucially for me, it's always got to be about thinking and doing. Good ideas are great, but if they're not implemented, they just remain ideas. And for us, it's that vision. So how can we take this, test it, learn from it and then create scalable replicable solutions to serve other places and other cities so final question from from me what have you watched read or listened to that you think is worth a look well i'm going to be cheeky if i may and you can decide which one goes in the newsletter i'm going to go with two so i I just finished reading um shoe dog by phil knight which is the story of nike Mm. and uh I, i grew up when nike was already a sort of ubiquitous brand and um it was everywhere, but but to to realise that the story behind it was of a there's a lovely bit in the book where he talks about you know if you went for a jog in America you were weird you know jogging wasn't normal and so the brand actually was normalising and um, celebrating our any of us can go for a run you know that, that time that the Nike brand or it wasn't it was Tiger originally started to come out it was very much around professional athletes and track runners. And it's just an extraordinary story of perseverance and uh, vision, tenacity, and I loved it. But but real, you know, to realise behind the brand was this this cultural change, fundamental cultural change uh, about um, what 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 Nike was driving. And and you know, look at the brand now, look what it's achieved. But but actually, it was a time when a lot of this technology um, and even the concept of going for a, jo- a jog was alien. So I found that fascinating. Um, the other book that I've really just enjoyed, uh, just finished, was a book called um, Transfluence by by Walt Rakovich. And, and it's the sort of strap line for that book was leading with transformative influence. And I think because that sort of, it resonated with us or resonated with me when I read it, because there's a lot around there about integrity, values, building trust. There's a lot about models of leadership and 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 creating safety for people and I, I just found that book very inspiring because I, you know when you read a book and it and it speaks to some of the, your thinking and some of the things you've observed but it does it in a way that you couldn't have articulated and wouldn't have been able to to reflect back without someone having really done the research and the thinking for you so yeah transfluence by by Walt Rokovich is a uh, another book that I'd recommend if people are interested in and just leadership models generally and thinking about how we I suppose influence, but in, as you asked, Mike, earlier, how do we do it in the right way? How do we do it in a good way? Uh, and the, va- and yeah. the values that underpin that and the success and what success even looks like uh, in that kind of model. So, um, yeah, two books there that I've really enjoyed recently. 
Fantastic. And uh, the, the reference to Nike there reminded me of, um, there's a Netflix uh, documentary called Abstract, The Art of Design, and they interview the shoe designer, Tinker Hatfield, who designed all the Air Jordans over the, the history. Um, and that's absolutely fascinating to get into his mind and see his kind of process. Um, so it might be a supplementary to read the book and then watch the yeah, well, I look forward to that because it, it's it's a it's a wild ride that that in terms of yeah worth worth looking at. Thanks so much for uh, your time with us, uh, Jez. It's been fantastic to to hear your passion uh, and uh, to get under the skin of, of of why housing matters and why it needs to be rethought. And really appreciate your time with us. It's been great to have you. Pleasure. Thank you, and thanks for having me along. You've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters has been put together by Spark Studio, the brand and design agency based in London. To find out more about us, visit our website at sparks-studio.com. Join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at hashtag whyitmatterspod or get in touch with me at whyitmatters at sparks-studio.com. Thanks for listening.